What would you be willing to do if a family member or loved one was murdered? More than 100,000 DNA samples may need retesting as lab fungal worsens. Why do doctors take so much blood when you're getting a blood test? The rise and fall of Theranos. Guilty on 4 out of 11 federal fraud and conspiracy charges, Theranos did get one thing right though. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are my own opinions. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome back to another episode of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist. YouTuber and podcaster, and on this podcast, we talk about the business of science and how the recent headlines in science, technology, and business tells us about the jobs of the future. And ironically, today we're talking about an example where science and business actually don't mix particularly well because we're going to open with the question If a family member, a loved one of yours, was murdered, would you stop at nothing? Spare no expense. The business of doing science testing is usually not a profitable one. Usually it's done on a cost recovery basis. A lot of these testing facilities are paid for by tax dollars. So tax dollars are always under scrutiny. They're always being gauged as to their value for money. And so there comes the friction. I'm based in Australia and a very recent headline revolves around a Queensland lab bungle that has meant more than 100,000 DNA samples implicated in some kind of criminal proceedings may now need to be retested. The health minister says scientifically sound methodology was sacrificed for speed. Out of these 100,000 samples that may need to be retested, it may take over three years to clear the backlog. Following a police review, it was revealed that 37,000 cases dated back all the way to 2007 were affected by this DNA testing bungle. Now, what kind of sacrifices are they really talking about when it comes to speed? What happens when you get a raw blood sample or a swab is that the DNA is not out of its shell. It may be still within cells, it may be in trace amounts surrounded by contaminants, and you have to be able to extract the DNA and purify it to be able to do any sensitive testing on that DNA and really identify the sequence of the DNA and hopefully connect it to a suspect or the murderer. But that extraction process, speaking of someone who's done quite a few DNA extractions in my time, pedantic. It requires a lot of different tubes, a lot of different chemicals. You got to physically add one to another and invert it up and down, up and down. And the whole process you can do for one single DNA sample, it'll take you a couple of hours. But if you are under pressure, and again, this is where business and science don't mix particularly well, the pressure of doing so many tests really runs counter to the detail and depth you would want to happen to all of these investigations because you want the right person convicted, you want the right suspect charged. And that's exactly the focus of this article, which talks about the second commission inquiry of these forensic and scientific services in 17 months. And the method being questioned is automated DNA extraction. Put the DNA into a plate, the robot then adds all of the chemicals one by one in and out of the wells, in and out of the tubes, and you are able to what we call multiplex 96 samples at the same time as opposed to one single sample at the same time. And there is less variation across each of these samples because the robot is doing it very consistently. And depending on how it's tuned and serviced, it can really guarantee a certain level of error margin that a human simply cannot. But there's a cost. The robot is not going to judge each reaction, each process halfway through to see if something wrong happened. It's just going to execute the protocol, do it as accurately as possible, but it won't be able to stop halfway through and say, oh, hold on, maybe this step needs a little bit longer for this reaction. Maybe there's not enough DNA in this sample. So we can let step three incubate for a little bit longer. A person, a human scientist, a manual curator can make that judgment call, but a robot 
automated process won't be able to do that. It will just stick the same protocol across all of these samples. A manual DNA extraction method versus an automated DNA extraction system, there is more than 90% difference in the amount of DNA extracted in that the manual process extracts on average, I'm guessing, 90% more DNA than the automated process. That seems like a staggering difference. And I do question the person who put in the standard operating protocol for the robot to go and do the automated process, because this would never be acceptable. The automation should at least be maybe 10, 20% difference, but not 90% difference. Has the potential to impact over 7,000 serious crime and sexual assault cases that are now under review because the DNA extraction protocol that was done by the robot was losing a whole lot of DNA that would potentially provide more clues and provide a more accurate DNA profile to pinpoint who is actually the guilty party at hand. You still need a certain amount of DNA to do any kind of work. 90% more of a very small amount, that still doesn't really matter. You do need a critical mass, a critical threshold of DNA to be available to be able to do the kind of testing that we need to do. Now, very simply put, this kind of testing is looking for, first of all, how much DNA is present, and we can visualize this through a technique called geoelectrophoresis. DNA has a charge to it, is a molecule that we can put through a gel, a jelly-like matrix, which also has a charge, a positive end and a negative end. And when you pass electrical current through this jelly and move the DNA through, you could seriously visualize a DNA as a little horizontal band in this gel and see how big the size is. After you visualize that DNA is actually there, you can then put it through DNA sequencing. You can identify all the different sequences of letters, A, T, C, and G, and match them to a DNA sample that was collected and swabbed from the suspects. And if the two match to a reasonable level of statistical significance and certainty, you can be relatively confident, as confident as any testing technique that the DNA at the crime scene did come from this person, but you still need enough DNA to be present to begin with. So that begs the next question. What is the threshold for the amount of DNA that is enough to generate a profile of a potential suspect? According to this article, which is linked in the show notes below as always, a sample of major crime cases before early 2018 were fully tested unless they returned a value under 0.001 nanograms per microliter. Unless you're a scientist, this number does not really hold any significance to you. Hopefully you can visualize how much one gram is, right? So if you measure a gram of sugar or a gram of salt, it kind of fits into a spoon and then you divide that by a thousand, that is a milligram. And then you divide that milligram by another thousand, then that is a microgram. You divide that by a thousand again, then you get a nanogram. So gram to milligram to microgram to nanogram and here it's saying it's 0.001 nanograms so you can divide that nanogram by a thousand again so it's literally one over one with 12 zeros that is such a tiny amount of dna but where the controversy is this document put out an option to disregard any dna sample with between 0.001 nanograms and 0.0088 nanograms per microliter to be fair this is a really tiny amount of dna again it's one divided by one with 12 zeros, a very, very small, invisible, microscopic amount of DNA. If it's this little DNA, 0.001 nanograms less than that, then they would not bother because it was not an efficient use of resources and they would not go and do that testing. I don't know how you might feel about it. Again, if you were the family member of someone who was assaulted or killed, you would read this number and be infuriated that the forensic testing service did not 
take this and roll with it and expend all the resources they had to really make sure they could extract all the DNA profiles from this really small amount of DNA, I'm very much on the fence. I'm hoping the technology gets more sophisticated to a point where this tiny amount of DNA, which by the way, if we're working in a research lab, experiments simply wouldn't work. Unless we're dealing with one microgram of DNA, it's gonna fail before we even start. It's not enough DNA for our experiments. For forensic testing, you don't need as much DNA. The temptation there is for scientists who are limited with resources, limited in time, with a huge backlog of cases, facing taxpayer pressure at all angles. You might say, look, this is such a small amount of DNA that we could put these samples to the too hard basket, as hard as that is to hear for families whose cases are in the pipeline awaiting the testing of these forensic services. How little is too little DNA for anything to be done to generate a usable profile for a potential suspect. If we look at the Kyogen website, one of these big companies that supply all these DNA extraction kits, how much DNA can we actually put into a DNA gel and still see it? The answer is the least amount of DNA that can be detected with a very common detection agent, ethidium bromide, is 10 nanograms and it actually recommends 100 nanograms per well to give a sharp clean band. 10 nanograms is the minimum amount that we can visualize on a gel. The threshold there was 0.001 nanograms so 10,000 times less DNA than what this website is recommending as the least amount that can be visualized. First sign that that threshold it might not be great to have but it's not an unreasonable threshold. If there is not enough DNA to begin with, we can actually try and make copies of this small amount of DNA using a technique called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, where we put PCR primers next to a template DNA. That template DNA would be whatever is found at the crime scene and try and run a reaction where it makes lots and lots of copies of that DNA. But you still do need enough of that template DNA to begin with to run a successful PCR reaction. So what amount of DNA do you need to run a PCR reaction and to get the ball to make more and more copies. This article is from Thermo Fisher Scientific, which again is a company that makes a lot of these reagents. Their business is in amplifying and extracting DNA. Six critical components to consider when setting up your PCR, your polymerase chain reaction. What is the minimum amount of template DNA that you need? If you're working with plasma DNA, which is DNA that's quite simple, it's like a circle, you need, according to this, 0.5 picograms of DNA. A picogram is one nanogram divided by a thousand. If you're dealing with very simple circular DNA, plasma DNA, then that threshold of 0.001 nanograms is actually enough for you to do a PCR reaction. And then you can amplify the DNA up so that there's more of it and you can do any subsequent test on the DNA you amplified. But most of the time, the DNA that's found at crime scenes is human DNA that would be pertinent to the investigation. So it's not a simple plasma DNA. If we're talking about genomic or human DNA, we're talking about gigabases, millions and millions of base pairs, way more complicated. And in this case, you need two nanograms at least to get any kind of amplification. Two nanograms is 2,000 times higher than the lowest threshold of 0.001 nanograms that that forensic testing lab was using as the cutoff to say, hey, it's a too hard basket. It's not going to work. I can sympathize and empathize with both sides of the equation. If you're a family member who 
has suffered loss. You want no expense spared. You want every possible resource directed towards the scientific testing of the forensic evidence to give you the result to show you who is guilty of this crime. These guidelines that the scientists had put in were coupled with all of these other mitigating factors that they also had seemingly a toxic work culture, secrecy around the way they did the testing and there wasn't full transparency. And again, this is where business and science don't truly mix and hopefully the laboratory testing facilities have other ways of generating revenue so that they are not always under stress always under pressure to cut 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 not forced to automate procedures without fully assessing the amount of variability from a manual curation to automated curation this all reflects the pressure that the business of science is constantly under especially in the area of forensics when i hear about tiny infinitesimal amounts of biological material to deliver these outsized outcomes and convict people and give all these amazing results for prosecutors. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? The rise and fall of Theranos, helmed by Elizabeth Holmes, subject of multiple documentaries and Hulu shows. This is a company that built its supposed fortune, its house of cards fortune, on the Edison device. A tiny proprietary vial that can extract a drop of blood and conduct all these amazing blood tests, seemingly an infinite number of blood tests. They obviously committed a litany of mistakes, not to mention crimes, but they did get one thing right. And I'm going to come back to that one thing in just a moment. They hit the ground running and partnered with Walgreens and basically made their testing facilities, their testing vials available, all of these locations of Walgreens all across the United States. In 2015, there was a Wall Street Journal investigation. This Edison device is a sham. And in fact, the vast majority of tests that it claims to be able to do is done from traditional vials of blood drawn from the arm, not the few drops drawn by a finger prick. And in fact, many of the tests that they were doing were just repurposed tests from big manufacturers that were done traditionally. It would be like a restaurant winning a Michelin star and you find out that all their food is takeaway from another restaurant down the road, which has robots doing all the cooking. In 2016, Theranos was forced to avoid two years of blood tests after these revelations come to light. Holmes is banned from running labs for two years and then the lawsuits begin. Walgreens, Susan Theranos, layoffs, failed lab inspections, settlements, criminal fraud charges, and so on and so forth. We've seen this show before. Across these litany of sins, mistake, and fraud, what is that one thing that Theranos got right? Tap into people's fears. The fear of the blood test the fear of the needle, the fear of seeing the blood trickle out from your arm. That was the original sin that catalyzed all of it. You could talk about this to anyone from a toddler to a grandma and all of them would be united and saying that's quite an unpleasant process. And if you can tap into that insecurity, you could raise a lot of interest from the VC crowd because that is an existential threat that we all feel in our gut. And this is reflected very clearly in this article from Quora. It's really quite eye-opening. How many blood tests can be carried out with just one drop of blood? When they take a blood test, why did it take so many tubes of blood? How can I prevent fainting after getting a blood test done? Since only one drop of blood is needed for testing, why did they always take a vial of my blood? Did they sell the extra amount? Tapped into this deep sea 
deep-seated fear people have around blood testing. If you have a device that overcomes this, there is huge fortune to be made, even if it's a complete fraud. To answer some of these questions, I really like this article from The Conversation, How Do Blood Tests Work? A medical laboratory scientist explained a pathway from blood draw to diagnosis and treatment. The first step involves getting your blood drawn through a practice known as phlebotomy, and a phlebotomist or a nurse inserts a needle into a vein, maybe puts a tourniquet on you on your arm to really force the blood to come out and collects a blood specimen. And the reason that they need so many tubes of blood, all of these different tests that your doctor may have ordered, needs a different biological or chemical condition. A test used to diagnose anemia. It requires blood to be collected in a chemical that prevents the blood from clotting. But if you're getting a test for a clotting disorder, their tube has to contain an anticoagulant that's different from the one in the anemia tube. Sometimes you have to incubate blood in the absence of oxygen. So again, that's a different tube altogether. You need different vials for different tests because every test has a different reaction. Your doctor usually will ask for a blood test, not just for one single thing, but usually for lots of different types of things. There are some tests that you can do that only need one drop of blood, the finger prick blood test for blood glucose if you're a diabetic. The much more accurate way of assessing your blood sugar is the HbA1c test, which is done by collecting a big vial of blood and assesses your blood sugar over a three-month period rather than the instantaneous reading you're taking at any point of the day. So even the tests that only need a drop of blood, they are just the quick in the field version of the tests that then needs further validation and confirmation by these way more detailed blood tests. How Theranos' faulty blood tests got to market. Normally, medical devices are the most highly regulated products. That blood testing kit that Theranos was selling did not match that legal definition and therefore was not subject to the same regulation of normal medical devices. The Theranos test fell under a category called a laboratory developed test, which is an in vitro diagnostic test that is designed, manufactured and used within single laboratories and not within hospitals. FDA does not enforce pre-market reviews of this type of test and therefore Theranos was not required to have its test evaluated by regulators before offering them to patients and this is a real red flag in the loophole being accessible by Theranos is also accessible to other kinds of testing kits. Obviously, you don't want to design a testing kit that's only used under very clean in vitro laboratory conditions. You want your diagnosis to be able to use out in the field so that can help as many people as quickly as possible. This is not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. And you would have seen headlines around blood tests for Alzheimer's disease detecting certain plaques and proteins that we talked about on a previous episode. We've been hearing about all of these cancer blood tests, trying to pick up biomarkers for a long time. And to begin with, they do have to conduct these tests in a controlled laboratory environment on a set number of samples where they know what the outcome is going to be until it can be useful in the clinic, useful in the hospital without that extra careful control environment being in place it may be able to skirt the regulations that the fda puts into place but it ultimately won't be able to impact and improve healthcare sector and health outcomes for patients until it meets that burden of proof and it's all these regulations this technology these technical hurdles the limit of sensitivity and accuracy it does beg the question who is going to be able to do this kind of work what kind of skills do we need in people who will enter the workforce to either develop these tests or to go work in forensics and that brings us to our recurring segment whose job is in any way where we contemplate employability jobs and careers in science and innovation the next article is from a career website portal called indeed based in australia 19 forensic careers to consider 
with salary and job info. This information is apparently accurate as of 20th of March, 2023. Biomedical scientist, private investigator or PI, forensic engineer, geneticist, forensic psychologist, analytical chemist, forensic chemist, policy advisor, forensic accountant, toxicologist, research associate, pathologist, forensic pathologist, forensic sounds technician, forensic investigator, evidence technician, forensic manager, expert witness, forensic specialist. Lots of people get into science because they're interested after watching all the murder mystery shows reading the novels by Kathy Reich, the idea that science can do a lot of good if it's applied towards the field of forensics. In Australia, forensics is not a huge boom at present in 2023. Right now, as of November 2023, there are 64 jobs all across Australia in the fields of forensics, spanning across any or all of those 19 forensic science jobs I just talked about. So 64 jobs in a whole country does not really give you the confidence that there's a lot of positions out there for someone who's exactly trained to do forensic work. If you want to get into any field, you want to think, I want to make as much money as possible. And the idea that you can be an expert witness to give forensic testimony and make a lot of money. Here, apparently, the average salary is $141,000 per year. Or you could be a forensic specialist. You come in like bones. You come in, you're the person whose specialty is bones. After collecting the evidence, you make the test and you may also be the person involved in giving expert testimony in a criminal trial. But to get to that point, you cannot do three years of degree and go straight into become an expert specialist that gives testimony. The whole job market is biased against the young people. The jury pool will dismiss you as a Gen Z, as a millennial, that you don't know anything, and the people hiring will think you're too young. So aiming for this job as the first job out of your studies is not a particularly realistic or successful career development strategy. What I would instead do is focus on some of those jobs earlier on that maybe don't have forensics so front and center as part of their job description. For example, biomedical scientist. Your job is to understand how the body works. You could get into a research project investigating molecules in a certain part of the body. No, it doesn't have forensics in the title, but if you search for biomedical scientist as opposed to forensic scientist, there are way, way more jobs with that more generic title description than something very specifically in forensics, at least in my country of Australia. Maybe our crime rate isn't as high as other countries. While you're working as a biomedical scientist, again, not specifically in forensics, you're learning all the skills. You're learning the laboratory techniques, you're learning the manual dexterity to perform this kind of analysis, as well as being able to program those big robots because eventually everything might be automated, develop standard operating protocols for operating those robots, and you bind your time. You build up a CV of working in different areas of science. Maybe you start working with skin samples, you progress to brain samples, you progress to blood samples, and over time you build up this unimpeachable resume coupled with research publications, conference presentations, building your professional networks over time. And five, 10 years down the track, you then apply for that job with a very, very clear forensic label on it. You do need to play a long game if you want to be in forensics. Only the most senior scientists with a very clear specialty are given the opportunity to manage these forensic testing labs. You need to build up a career pathway 
filled with all of these different opportunities before eventually you will be the number one expert witness on blood in the country or the number one expert specialist in investigating bones or skin or hair follicles. That starts all the way from being a humble scientist, even if that does not have the glitz and glamour of being on TV. If you're interested in how scientists can develop soft skills that will move their career forward, you can find that episode linked here or in the show notes below. I'm Jack, hope to connect with you again in the next episode.